Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live. Talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hey there. Hey there. Welcome to another miserable Monday in Pittsburgh. I'm just speaking for those of you who are Steeler fans. Uh, the rest of us are okay. I mean, not like I'm not a Steeler fan, but I don't care anymore much. Uh, so the, I, I recommend that uh, that to everybody else. It sure helps, especially when a team is <laughs> clearly floundering. Yeah, for a big sports town, we're, thank God for the University of Pittsburgh football team at the moment. Anyway, that's all I'm saying on sports, enough of that. Uh, so, did I say it's the 23rd of September? Is this the Equinox Day? This is this, I think it is. It's the, all over the globe. It's uh, pretty much, although not totally, exactly 12 hours dark and 12 hours light. I read something about it the other day, and then and then they started fudging and saying that really isn't true, but I guess that that's... We are equidistant right now from the longest day of the year and the shortest day of the year. Does that make sense? Maybe. <laughs> Don't ask me. Uh, okay, guys, we got a problem. I hate to I hate to mention it, but uh, uh, the name is uh, uh, Donald Trump, and you know I I hate to mention this, but my God, there are a lot of folks now who are saying, "Come on, we gotta we gotta impeach this guy. We just gotta." Uh, doesn't matter if he's not going to be convicted uh, by these uh, treasonous Republicans in the Senate. It just doesn't matter. Let me uh, share with you a few things um, that I read over the last uh, three days that that point to the fact that um, we there needs to be a historical uh, mark made by us, the American people, and our representatives that this was a president unlike any other and so, so worthy of removal from office that, in fact, we moved to do just that. If this president is not impeached, then I ask you, <laughs> what president could ever be impeached? It's hard to imagine a worse holder of this office than this man. Um, the New York Times quoted um, someone who was who led the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel under George W. Bush. Okay. This is what this is before obviously the Republican Party went totally insane. And this man says this that Donald Trump and his behavior in the Oval Office reveals the extent to which our constitutional system assumes and relies upon that we will have a president with a modicum of national fidelity and decent judgment. And he's right. The Founding Fathers could not imagine a clown like this. They assumed that whoever stood and took that oath of office on a cold January day 
was actually taking the words to heart. Would take that heavy burden of responsibility to heart. Would do his his utmost, his best, even if it fell short. So, in other words, our const- the whole Constitution, the entire system, is designed for on the assumption that there will be somewhat honorable, I mean, even a person with a modicum of understanding of the position and the responsibility. And when you have somebody who doesn't give a damn about any of it, about the fact that we have this uh, this government in which there are three branches of government, each, each with its own responsibilities and jobs. He has flouted the legislative branch totally. The constant he refuses time and time again to obey the law. So, this guy who served in the Justice Department under Bush says what the Constitution doesn't do is it doesn't address if the real hazard to the country is coming from the president himself. Now, I would argue that it sort of does, and we sort of have that, what, 25th Amendment now, sort of. None of this stuff makes any sense if it isn't employed, if it isn't utilized, when it clearly should be. Here's an extremely troubling little factoid that I came upon. This was in a Charles Blow uh, piece. He points out that we're all being told that... The only real thing, I said this just a few weeks ago, the only real way that we're going to get rid of this guy is in November of next year uh, by voting him resoundingly out of office. But he says this, and this is the part that I think a lot of us can't get through our heads. He says, that is not a certainty. And here's why it's not a certainty. And we know why, right? The Electoral College. He points out that Nate Cohn doing a crunching the numbers in July said Donald Trump could actually lose more of the popular vote next year. Lose more of the popular vote next year and still win the Electoral College by an even greater margin than he did. Now, I have to tell you, if that doesn't bespeak a real, real problem in our constitutional structure, (laughs) I'd like to have you show me a bigger one that he could lose more than 4 million, maybe 5 million people in America could say, get out of here. And because they're not living in the right states, their voices are not heard. And this man who a resounding majority of Americans have said, get the hell out of here, stays constitutionally for another four years. So that is 
truly sobering. An op-ed that David Leonhardt did uh, today is, is uh, interesting and getting a bit of buzz. He tells us what we already know. But he does it in a way that it's like bullet points. Uh, his piece, I've been told, I didn't bother counting him, consists of just 40 sentences. Each sentence, a reminder of an action taken by this president during his tenure, each one ostensibly could be considered a high crime and misdemeanor, which in any other presidency would have resulted in impeachment. Forty! I'll share them with you. You know them, we know them, but let's... It shows how numb we've gotten. It shows how, if you have somebody like this, who flouts all tradition, all norms, the law, anything, anything. Doesn't give a damn about the country. Only cares about himself. He has pressured a foreign leader to interfere in the 2020 American presidential election. He urged a foreign country to intervene in the 2016 presidential election. He divulged classified information to foreign officials. He publicly undermined American intelligence agents while standing next to a hostile foreign autocrat. He hired a national security advisor whom he knew had secretly worked as a foreign lobbyist. He encourages foreign leaders to enrich him and his family by staying at his hotels. He genuflects to murderous dictators. He has alienated America's closest allies. He lied to the American people about his company's business dealings in Russia. He tells new lies virtually every week about the economy, voter fraud, even the weather. He spends hours on end watching television and days on end playing golf and staying at his resorts. He often declines to read briefing books or perform other basic functions of his job. He has aides as well as members of his own party in Congress who mock him behind his back as unfit for office. He has repeatedly denigrated a deceased United States senator who was an American war hero. He insulted a gold star family, the survivors of American troops killed in action. He described a former first lady not long after she died as nasty. He described white supremacists as some very fine people. He told four women of color, all citizens and members of the U.S. Congress, to go back from where they came. He made a joke about Pocahontas during a ceremony honoring Native American World War II veterans. He launched his political career 
by falsely claiming that the first black president was not really American. He launched his presidential campaign by describing Mexicans as rapists. He has described women variously as a dog, a pig, horse face, as well as bleeding badly from a facelift and having blood coming out of her whatever. He has been accused of sexual assault or misconduct by multiple women. He enthusiastically campaigned for a Senate candidate who was accused of molesting multiple teenage girls he waved around his arms while giving a speech to ridicule a physically disabled person. He has encouraged his supporters to commit violence against his political opponents. He has called for his opponents and his critics to be investigated and jailed. He uses a phrase popular with dictators, the enemy of the people, to describe journalists. He attempts to undermine any independent source of information that he does not like, including judges, scientists, journalists, election officials, the FBI, the CIA, the Congressional Budget Office, and the National Weather Service. He has tried to harass the chairman of the Federal Reserve into lowering interest rates. He said that a judge could not be ob ob objective because he was of Mexican heritage. He has obstructed justice by trying to influence an investigation into his presidential campaign. He violated federal law by directing his lawyer to pay $280,000 in hush money to cover up two apparent extramarital affairs. He made his fortune partly through wide-scale financial fraud. He has refused to release his tax returns. He falsely accused the last president of wiretapping him. He claimed that federal law enforcement agents and prosecutors regularly fabricated evidence, thereby damaging the credibility of criminal investigations across the country. He has ordered children to be physically separated from their parents. He has suggested that America is no different from or better than Vladimir Putin's Russia. He has called America a hellhole. The last sentence. He is the president of the United States. And he is a threat to virtually everything that the United States should stand for. All fact. Could we be more divided? The fact that there's a good 40% of the country that apparently would still, maybe, kinda, I guess, vote for him. The Wall Street Journal did a fascinating uh, graphic piece on the polarization of the United States and how if you just look at us, it is so obvious that Democrats and Republicans represent two different countries almost, two different economies even. If you look at where Democrats live and where their representatives in Congress come from, 
they come from the most productive parts of the country in, in terms of gross domestic product. Democratic House districts, if you look at them, believe me, are substantially richer. They are doing better. Two-thirds of America's GDP comes from areas where Democrats control the political landscape. The Republicans, the other third. And this is striking because the Republican share of our production, of our gross domestic product, is shrinking even as it controls more and more house districts. If you look at the last 10 years. So it piles up again by virtue of all kinds of things, voter suppression, gerrymandering, partisan gerrymandering. The Republicans manage to have far greater political clout than any reasonable person would say they should. And again, it bespeaks true structural deficiencies, real problems that are now increasingly being manifest in our system. If you look at the richest Republican districts, they invariably are where there is oil and gas industry. So, largely in Texas, Oklahoma. And then just look at household income, Republicans, Democrats. Just 10 years ago, median household income was about the same for Democrats and for Republicans. In the last 10 years, there has been a jump of median income nearly 17% in Democratic districts and a decline in Republican districts of 3%. So that's a movement of splitting again us apart. When the journal says we... One, I mean, we've been talking about we don't understand these people. That's like a alien universe. The fact is, is that we're living in different realities. Democrats represent districts with the biggest clusters of professional jobs. They include all those urban areas. They include Silicon Valley and. Pittsburgh and Boston and New York and Chicago and San Francisco and Portland and, and Atlanta. Nearly three-quarters of all jobs in digital or professional industries are in Democratic districts. Republican districts, by contrast, big contrast, hold the nation's agriculture, mining, and low-skill manufacturing jobs. And they are much more exposed to overseas competition, to Donald Trump's absurd tariff war, where he's harming the very people who put him in the White House. It wasn't too long ago that 
Republican Party and the Democratic Party were geographically intertwined. But the Wall Street Journal says it really was in 2010 that this schism happened, and they blame the Tea Party. That Tea Party election, if you'll recall, 2010, that election wiped out Democrats who represented working-class districts and rural districts. Wiped them out across the Midwest, across the Southeast, And then what happened just last year? The 2018 midterms wiped out Republicans who represented suburban areas, making this transition almost seemingly complete. The president of the National Farmers Union says this, when folks have less in common with one another, it's hard to expect that they're going to see the problem the same way, let alone recognize that a problem even exists. Education, location, paychecks, all of that, an extraordinary divide. We literally don't live in the same world. Now, back to uh, impeachment. I thought a pretty interesting piece uh, by a professor of international politics at Tufts, um, and this was uh, published in the Washington Post. Um, and he actually does note uh, David Leonhardt's uh, 40, 40 facts. He says they're rather appalling. That, and you come to, if you read it, to his end, which is that it is the president that is a threat to virtually everything that America should stand for. So I think a majority of Americans do believe that the Trump presidency is hurting the United States badly. We still have not figured out or come to any kind of a enough of a mass conclusion about what to do. The obvious thing is, of course, that which is systemically available, impeachment. Since this news about uh, the president and Ukraine and Biden has come out, more, many more uh, Democrats are just saying, we gotta, we gotta. There's no doubt about it. Pelosi is still worried about the political calculus of it because she knows that those traitorous senatorial aiders and abettors of this traitorous president will not convict. So it could be that the American people will see the impeachment as simply an exercise in partisanship, not an effort to do the proper job of the Congress. Um, this guy goes on to say that the best thing to do is to impeach him. 
And you know why? Because it'll distract him. To say that Trump can be easily distracted is an understatement. He also is the distractor-in-chief. He knows how to distract us and media, but he too is easily sent in whatever direction somebody who wants to manipulate him wants him to go. His short attention span, his obsession about small slights and things. And this is an interesting thing that he says. We all know now that Trump is a micromanager. He literally is overseeing every little stupid thing, including, you know, like that weather map uh, that comes out of, of the White House. And one of the reasons this guy says he's such a micromanager about all this piddling crap is because the bigger aspects, the weightier aspects of the job simply overwhelm him. So where his predecessor sometimes knew so much, Bill Clinton, Jimmy Carter, those guys knew so much that they got obsessed with the details, Trump knows so little that microscopic little concerns seem almost to be ends in and of themselves to him. It's what he can get his hands around. So you impeach Trump because he'll be obsessed about it. And the minute he's obsessed, he will talk about nothing else. Which means he won't be doing as many reckless things. This is what this guy is suggesting, like trying to compromise the independence of the Fed or launching a larger trade war or stumbling into an actual war. He'll just be obsessed with the impeachment. And then the guy says, let me be clear, I am suggesting that the House impeach Trump for two reasons. One, he has committed high crimes and misdemeanors. Make no doubt of it. And two, because impeachment will distract him from further harming the national interest. It sure as hell is not a perfect strategy, but it looks like that might be all we got. So this is his argument for impeachment. At least distract this dangerous man. So maybe the damage will be less. And do we still have a caller there? Caller, go ahead. Hello, Lynn. Hi. Hi. Hey, um, I, you were talking about the election, and I, I was reading a few things that. Uh, I think Jonathan Alder, one of those guys, wrote or something. And he was saying about the 25% of people, they're like two-issue people, guns and abortions, and they'll vote for him if he killed somebody. But, and, but there's the other 20%, which they, gave, they don't like him personally, but they like some of the things he does. There should, and the Trump administration uh, campaign is really worried now because they're showing cracks in their plan. It's starting to dwindle those people where he's not going to be able to pull off the same thing he pulled off last time. I think Michigan's one of the states, and there's a couple other, and they're showing that it's going Democratic more. So they're kind of really, Trump's really pissed off about it, and it's it's starting to crack. It's starting to maybe this is a sign that he's going to go down. And I don't, and I kind of believe, and I go back and forth, cause, but I'm kind of thinking he can't pull the same thing off twice. I think there was a lot of people, even my, when I watch him, some of his ideas, I thought, yeah, they're not bad, you know, the trade and all that, but I'd never vote for him. But some people get fooled by it, but now they know him, you know what I mean? Once you know somebody and what they did and he didn't help you, I think that 20% is just going to go down and down and down. I, I really think the guy might just drop out because he knows he's going to lose and he's not he don't like to lose. He's not going to drop out. That that I can't see. I if can't his polls, see that. If he's bad enough, 
and he sees his internal polls in the Republican Party, the Republicans are worried right now. If he sees that goes down too far where he cannot win, he will drop out. No, he'll do something Before like wag the dog and, and bomb the hell out of Iran or something. I, I don't know. Well, that'll just even put him worse. Well, people don't want war. There's polls on that, too. But I know you can't go by the polls, but I, I'm starting to feel more optimistic. I'm not confident, but I think there's, there's it's showing signs. And even people I've talked to before, they're kind of like, that guy's out there. And they were. They kind of liked them, and it's—I don't know—it okay. might be shifting. It's well, let's slow, hope. but it's shifting. Let's hope. What's that? <laughs> let's hope. Okay. Uh, thank you. All right. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. Okay. Bye. Jeez. If if that guy's hopeful, then maybe we're okay. I mean, he's usually gloom and doom. Here's another indication, uh, picking up where the caller left off, of that. Uh, the Republicans might really be in, in, in trouble. The number of Republican Congress people that are just saying, I'm out of here. Uh, they're refusing to run again. They're retiring. They're looking for some other, you know, other jobs. There was one uh, Republican out of Michigan who... Um, who is a case in point, he's one, you know, so the, some of these Republicans get, they reach a point where they simply can't deal with it. Um, this guy, his name is Paul Mitchell. When Trump said to uh, Omar and Presley and um, uh, Ocasio-Cortez to go back where they came from, that Republican congressman was stunned. And he called, he refuses to say which one, he called one of the House Republican leaders I'm going to guess it's McCarthy. And he said, please, please, get to the president and tell him to stop this. It's the wrong thing for a president to say, and it's politically damaging to the party and to the country. And then, three days later, he sees Trump at the rally, and he sees the crowd screaming, send her back, send her back. And he freaked out. He said, how do I respond to this? I'm supposed to defend this? He called the vice president. He called Pence. He called Pence's chief of staff. He called anybody he could think of that had any influence in the White House, is what he told. He said, I was, who can I call? I want a one-on-one -on -one conversation with the president. I need to tell him I can't support this. Nobody ever really got back to him. Nobody called him. And ten days later, he announced his retirement. He had only four years in. It was going to be, he's a relatively young man, it was going to be a, he thought, a career. And he said this, we're here for a purpose, and it's not this petty, childish bullshit. So he is emblematic of one, that's just one, everyone's got a different story, of a growing list of House Republicans. There are 18, as of today, who have said, I'm done. They've resigned, they've retired, they're going to retire. Um, and I suspect that will only grow. Since Trump's inauguration, uh, an analysis by the Washington Post shows, nearly 40% of the Republicans who were in office when Trump 
took the oath of office are gone or are leaving. 40% of his own party. And that includes somebody like Paul Ryan, former House Speaker. That includes somebody like this guy I just told you about, who, who's going in disgust, cannot even be part of this anymore. But it shows how much Trump has already damaged this party. Now, the guy in Michigan, he's from a Republican district. That's a Republican district. And Trump won it easily. So we'll see what happens in a district like that, where their own congressman says, I can't aid and abet this child, this destructive child. Mitchell the congressman in Michigan said this, did any member of this party expect that their job would start out every morning trying to go through the list of his tweets of the day? We're just thrashing around. Here is a guy who actually wanted to go to Congress to do the job. And if you look at how many are just saying that's it and are retiring, the numbers are staggering. Uh, all told, 41 House Republicans have left politics since Trump took office. I mean, they all say things like, uh, family, uh, I spend more time in my family, but behind the scenes, everybody knows that they just don't, they can't anymore, they can't stomach it. Uh, so, I don't know, we shall see what happens, but I do agree that uh, the Republicans are in big trouble. Well, the only thing they seem to have going for them is that unfortunate constitutional structure that was created for an America of eight, you know, in, in two centuries ago, and and at the time was so the Republicans would have more representation. As somebody pointed out the other last week, I think. They were adding states left and right to uh, all those western states. All of a sudden, Montana with seven people in it is a state and has two senators. And Wyoming, it's a state, has two senators. And it shows the Republicans always playing the system, right? Hey, I've got a, a heads up for you. I want to invite you to something. It's it's tomorrow night, but, jeez, I wish I could be there. I, I can't. I've got people coming over. But this is a wonderful opportunity. It's going to be at the Carnegie. It's free, 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 free at the Carnegie Library, um, the main one in Oakland, the big guy. And uh, it starts at 630 and it's called Dangerous Ideas in Difficult Times, and it is going to be about censorship and cartooning. Rob Rogers will be one of the uh, presenters, uh, as you know, fired from his uh, cartooning job for criticizing this president. He will be talking about the kind of overt censorship <laughs> that came his way. Also appearing, a professor at Pitt, Yona Harvey, who's a poet, and more. She is a contributor to the Marvel comic series Black Panther and the Crew. And she is going to address uh, the more subtle forms of censorship 
that occur, where people, unlike with what happened to Rob Rogers, where people knowing and ga- that something will cause trouble, where they self-censor, and that that is something that is occurring more and more, and people don't realize it. So I just think if anybody is interested in this, and God knows these are two smart, wonderful people. So it's Rob Rogers and Yona Harvey, uh, highly successful in their work. And this is in conjunction with Band Books Week, and it is sponsored by uh, the ACLU, uh, the CMU's English Department, and uh, Carnegie Library. And uh, I... I'd go if I could. It starts at 6.30, as I said, at the Carnegie Library Oakland branch uh, on Forbes Avenue. Okay? Just I told people I would definitely get the word out because I have a feeling this will be a really fascinating uh, event. Okay? I don't have a caller there, do I? No. Okay. I'm always forgetting. There was a story that broke Friday that was so unsettling. And I, because it broke on a Friday, I didn't have an opportunity to sort of put in my two cents worth about it or just to underscore it for you. And it's the story, it it ended up being printed in uh, the journal Science. And, you know, there's so much that is going on to our globe and those who live on it now that is not good. And we know the crisis of uh, climate change. Uh, Almost everywhere you look where animals are dying off, where bad things are happening, there is one major culprit, and it's us. It's humans. And they have actually now pretty much gotten a a count on how we're killing off the birds. Now, you know... (laughs) So many animals are increasingly threatened and endangered. But this was an ongoing study, and I just looked at uh, North America. And it was a team of researchers from universities, from governmental agencies, from nonprofits. And there's, you know, tons of volunteers who are always doing bird counts. But the reality is, is that in the United States and Canada, the number of birds in the sky since 1970 has been depleted by a third, 29%. It's down. There are three billion fewer birds than there were 50 years ago. And these are huge losses, even among the most common birds, the wrens, the robins. The losses are startling. And Lest people think, well, so fewer birds, who cares? Who cares? We're talking about ecosystems here. And birds are a vital part of our ecosystem. They control pests. They pollinate flowers. They spread seeds. And thus regenerate forests. The people who did this study were stunned. 
by the numbers. They did. They knew there was a drop. They were not expecting what they saw, and they are using words like stunned and staggering across the board. 440 million fewer blackbirds. 617 million fewer warblers. Even starlings that, you know, frankly, people have been trying to get rid of for a long time, (laughs) have dwindled by 49%. Where is the biggest? They can see geographically where the biggest drops are. And the biggest drops are the grassland species of birds. They have lost up to 717 million, and it's quite clear why they have been decimated by modern agriculture methods and by development. In other words, us. By our use of pesticides. The fact is, is birds can't put on, they, they, they create a situation where birds can't put on the weight they need to migrate. Interestingly, bald eagles, we know, are thriving. Falcons are thriving. But you know why? Because they were almost extinct, and we knew it. And we actually acted and did, took all kinds of affirmative action to repopulate those specific species. And we have been wildly successful in that. Those populations have grown by 33%. But the average bird, the songbirds. You know how, um, you know, Rachel Carson, right here in Pittsburgh who sounded the alarm before anybody wanted to even believe there was an issue. Didn't, and, and she was greeted with incredible skepticism. But in her prescient book, Silent Spring, did you ever realize the title? Silent Spring. And here's a line from her book that explains it. On the mornings that had once throbbed with the dawn chorus of robins, catbirds, doves, jays, wrens, and scores of other bird voices, there was now no sound. Interestingly, that was, yeah, 1962, and she saw what was going to happen. She saw we were going to kill off the birds. If you are still using pesticides on your lawns. Shame on you. Shame on you. And I mean that as strongly as I can. You're killing these animals. And you're killing more than those. You're killing insects. You're killing... There's there's whole universes there on that expanse of the stupid grass that people think is so important. It's killing. Sorry. Drives me insane. Jeez, this is a long email, Diane. Am I supposed to read this? (laughs) Um... Okay, 
Trump won Pennsylvania by 0.7%, Wisconsin by 0.7%, Michigan by 0.2%. That amounts to 77,000 votes divided between those three states. The Mueller report states that special counsel Mueller's report on Russian interference uh, direct, which doesn't conclude why Manafort, his campaign chair, who's now, of course, in jail, directed the handover of polling data about the key battleground states of, guess what, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Minnesota. They gave the information to the Russians. And they squeaked the election out. And then Diane reminds me she sent me this right after the election. It is not logical to think that the Russians went through all the trouble to hack and publish Clinton's and the Democrats' emails and then leave it to chance that this would be enough to guarantee a Trump victory. This would be like a bank robber surveilling a bank, getting into the vault, and then not stealing the money. It defies credulity. The media, in all of its weakness, too readily accepted the notion that the vote wasn't hacked. This makes no sense. In an assessment made by the... Intel, by the okay, so then she goes on and says... Well, I'm not going to go through everything, but she, she says, I believe that the outcome of this election was decided before one vote, before any of us in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, or Michigan went to vote. And then there's this, which is scary as hell, because she's right. As long as the media and the Democrats deny that the election was not stolen, Trump will steal it again in 2020. And Bob says, since you're not talking about football, why should I? There's plenty of places that'll talk about football. I take it you won't bring up the Patriots releasing Antonio Brown. No. I think I, Bob, last time you texted me about Antonio Brown, I told you I'm not adding to the verbiage uh, about this broken man. I think it's a it's a tragedy and uh he's destroyed himself his career and maybe he never had a chance because of his background i don't know look i take no joy in what's happened to him and i'll say again i think i don't know why he got so much worse but I am still saying that that Burdick hit, perfect, perfect hit that he took, that concussion. If you look back at his erratic behavior, I think it really started after that. I'm just saying. Roger says, great show today. Did you steal your material from the power of positive thinking? Ha! Gigi writes, so glad that you're talking about the stunning decline in birds. I work with birds, and I'm so glad that attention is being brought to this. There are many factors at play, but suffice it to say, it seems to be human-driven. You betcha. From development and fragmenting of habitat to industrial agriculture practices to homeowners who cut down native trees and plant non-native plants and who use pesticides and herbicides to the highly reflective glass buildings. That is right. I got things up on my windows so that because birds, when I first moved into my house, would hit the... Oh, it broke my heart. So I have these decals which warn the bird that that's a window. And then there's cats. They kill a lot. She says if everyone would devote even just a small piece of their yard to native plants, and of course, don't use pesticides, and plant oaks and maples, 
we could begin to restore this habitat if it's not too late. Oh, God. This is a subject that's becoming big, big, big to me in my own heart. And um, I, I, I do want to have, I, I see people cutting trees down. I want to kill them. I just want to kill them. If you cut one down, plant two. I'm not kidding. I'm sorry I'm screaming. Um, guys, uh, tomorrow's Tuesday. Susan will be here. And I mean here. <laughs> right there. Because she's in time. Okay? So I'll look forward to that. And uh, have a good day. Lynn Cullen Live. Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.